You coming to bed, hon? Yep, honey, I'll be right there. Just got to turn out the light. Ow! Ow! Some things never change. Like your kids always leaving tiny toys on the floor for you to step on. And Geico saving folks lots of money on their car insurance. Sweetie, I think I left the downstairs light on. Please don't make me go. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Awesome. Good. Praise God. These are the last days. You know, on the day of Pentecost, it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, that that was the beginning of the last days. So we are in the last of the last days. And the concept of the last days, of course, is it's a final ingathering of harvest. Pentecost was a feast, a festival in which they gathered in the harvest. So Jesus said, I give you power, the power of the Holy Spirit to do what? to be witnesses, right, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. So it's all about reaching people with the gospel. It's all about knowing Jesus and making him known. It's very simple. We overcomplicate it, but that's what it's all about. It's an amazing thing this week. How many are on Facebook? All right. How many wish you weren't on Facebook? All right. Okay. So I've just got too many, too much history. Like I had a thing pop up the other day and tell me, congratulations, Glenn, you've been on Facebook for seven years. I guess it was seven or eight years, I think it was. And uh, so I think I was one of the founding members of Facebook when it first came out. But the fact is, you know, on Facebook, um, there's something that I've noticed about Christians. And... um, I really am concerned about what's happening in the world when it comes to Christians because we become so egocentric in our faith. It's become about us, my problems, my breakthrough, my prosperity, my destiny, my calling, and, you know, my future and all this stuff. And so you post something about, you know, God is going to restore your wasted years, such as I did two days ago. And you have heaps of people that just like it. They say, that's amazing. Then you post something about Jesus says, take up your cross and follow him. And three people like it. (laughs) So what's wrong with that picture? Seriously. All right. And guys, honestly, it tells us the church is sick. I'll just be very honest. You know, I'm straight up. The church is sick. We need to get healed of our, uh, we need to get over ourselves. And, get, and really just get right with Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have struggles, we don't have issues. I'm not saying it's just a quick fix, a panacea, a quick cure-all all the time. I recognize that there is a place for contending, there's a place for fighting. We all go through stuff, it is a process. But I'm telling you, in the process, keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't keep your, don't look to yourself. Don't keep your eyes on yourself because that's exactly what the enemy wants. You'll never get your breakthrough. You'll never experience everything God wants you to do until you really put your eyes on Jesus and begin to do the things that he's called and created you and me to do. So this morning, we're going to continue in our series on the kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom. I'm going to ask you to take your Bible and turn to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at a familiar passage of scripture in the sense that one or two of the verses in this passage of Scripture are quoted very often by Christians, but typically we don't put it in the context of what it actually is saying. So today we're going to look at it in the context, Second Peter chapter 3. I'm going to start reading at verse number 8. Second Peter chapter 3, verse number 8. In the New King James Version says, But the day, I'm sorry, but beloved, here we go, but beloved, do not forget 
this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day, correct? Because he is ever, from everlasting to everlasting, he's God. And the bottom line is where there's no motion, where there's no matter, there is no such thing as time. That's what Einstein said. So we recognize that in the concept of, or in that context of uh, no space, no time, no motion, is where God lives, right? It's in the spirit realm. And so we recognize that with God, there's no such thing as time. And it says, it's amazing, it says in the book of Revelation, literally in chapter 10, that when Jesus returns, it says, time shall be no more. So modern translation says, there'll be no more delay, but the literal reading says, time shall be no more. There'll be no more time, right? So the day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day, correct? So that explains why God doesn't seem in a hurry sometimes. Okay. Does that make sense? All right, now the Lord, though, even though he may delay, listen to this, verse number nine, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that, what? Any should perish. Do you know who that means? Any means anyone. It means he wasn't willing that Osama bin Laden perish and not know him. He was not willing that the most evil person who's done the most despicable crimes in the world die apart from having a relationship with him. So he's God. He's totally different than you and me. It's not like us. He loves all people. Amazing. Think about it. Think about the person and this might be a little bit painful for you for a second, but the person that's done you the most harm and hurt you the most, and look and remember that Jesus still loves them and does not want to see them pass into a Christless eternity. Amazing. All right, simple stuff, but deep. Look at this. He's not long-suffering. He's not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness but is long-suffering toward is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, let me explain what he's talking about. He specifically says concerning his promise, singular, not promises, though there are many promises in God's word. He's speaking of a specific promise here. And what is that promise? If you start reading at the top of the chapter, at least there, remember when when these letters were written, first of all, there were no chapters or verses. It was like a letter. If you receive a letter from someone in the, in the mail, and you, you know, you're not going to just kind of like start reading it in the middle, would you? If someone sent you a letter, a letter, it would be personal. You begin to read it from the beginning, and you work your way through it. Now, there might be something in the middle that really stands out, catches your attention, but the bottom line is you're going to read it in its entirety. And so this is what he's speaking of. He's saying the promise is this, that one day God's going to return and he's going to make everything right. He's going to make everything right. Jesus is coming back. And evil people that have not repented and trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior and believed the gospel are in big trouble. People that have turned to Christ, it's all good. 
We're going to be gathered into his eternal kingdom. It's an amazing thing. We looked at it recently in Matthew 25 where he says, you know, there's the sheep and the goats, the sheep. He said, come you into the what? Kingdom that was prepared for you before the foundation of the world. So the kingdom was prepared before the foundation of the world. Come into that kingdom. Experience everything that God has for you in the fullness of what it, life was intended to be. So when Jesus comes back, everything that God intended our life to be will be experienced if we're truly born again. So no more what? Tears. No more pain. No more crying. No more sickness. No more poverty. No more evil. No more injustice. It's going to all be made right. And that's because the reason why is, look at Jesus is a king, and he has a kingdom. And we've been, this time of year when we reflect upon his coming into the world, one of the scriptures we often look at is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It talks about, you know, his name, his wonderful counselor, prince of peace, everlasting God. And it says, and you know what? The government shall be upon his shoulders, right? And it says, and of his, of his peace and of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. So he's speaking about his government. God has a government. Isn't it an amazing thing? And his government is a good government. His government literally will, his kingdom will literally replace every other kingdom one day. Daniel had a vision of that, about this mountain, this rock that was cut by human hands, but it came from this mountain. It crushed all the other kingdoms. And then in Revelation, we read where the angel cries out and he says, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of God and of his Christ. So one day that's going to happen in fullness. However, here's the point. The point is, even now, there is a sense in which the kingdom of God is to advance. The kingdom of God is to take firm footing in nations of the world. We've looked at the beginning chapter, uh, I'm sorry, in the beginning teaching on the series in Matthew 24, 14, where he says very clearly that it's the gospel of the kingdom that is to be preached throughout the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. So God has a kingdom, and the word gospel means good news, and it's this good news, this announcement that his kingdom has come, and that now you can enter into his kingdom and you can experience the fullness of everything that is legally available to you and me as a result of being a kingdom citizen or subject. So we come into that place. So God's saying what happens is there's literally a call to preach the kingdom, not to preach, you know, just like, hey, if you believe and you confess Jesus and he, he'll forgive you of your sins so you can, you know, go into heaven one day. That's really not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught something that goes way beyond that. He certainly taught reconciliation to God. He certainly taught that we would escape the judgment uh, of of you know, whatever you want to call it, hell or whatever the Bible calls it. But the reality is he's taught us that there's a kingdom that we can enter into now. And then that kingdom, we have everything that we will ever need. It's available to us in his kingdom. So that's why it says in Matthew 6, make sure that you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And then 
all these things will be added to you, everything you have need of. So what is happening is, you know, they're preaching the kingdom. They're going around the apostles and the book of Acts, and they're declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is King of kings. And by the way, the word Lord in the Greek language to that mindset is the Greek word kurios, which literally means a king. So he was preaching, Jesus is a king. No, 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 Caesar's a king. No, 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 I'm sorry. Caesar's going to bow his knee one day to Jesus Christ. So it wasn't a popular message. So recognize this. So what happens then is he speaks and he says, but there is a day coming when everything is going to change, where every knee will bow, every tongue confess, whether they want to or not, every person is going to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And hopefully, they'll do it because out of, out of willingness, out of a willing heart, out of a submissive heart, but otherwise, it doesn't matter. They're going to have to do it. So what takes place is he said, look, that day's going to come. Jesus is returning, and people are mocking People are scoffing. The time Peter has written this epistle, this letter, you know, we're talking about, depending on what scholar you listen to, but at least 30, 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So, oh yeah, Jesus is coming back. Why? Because they believed he was coming back in their time. But the reality is, oh, Jesus is coming back. Another year goes by and another year, and another year, and he still has not returned. So some people began to doubt. Some individuals took it to another level altogether and began to scoff. They began to mock. Oh, yeah, where is the coming of the Lord? Where is it as you've been talking about, as you've been sharing? And so the answer that Peter gives here is, look at. God's not slack concerning his promise. Jesus will return one day, and everything will be made right. The fullness of his kingdom will come. The new Jerusalem will come down from heaven to earth, and there will be literally righteousness, peace, and joy. No more sin, no more evil, no more death, no more sickness. All of these things will be eradicated from the earth. But here's what you got to understand. The reason why it hasn't happened yet is because God wants every single person to have the opportunity to be part of what he is going to do. And so he's not slack concerning his promises, but he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that everyone should come to the knowledge of God and repentance. So the reality is there's some of you that are here today, and the only reason you're still on the planet is because God said, I'm going to give you opportunity. How many are glad that you did not die before you came to know Jesus? Come on now. How many are happy that, look, you know what, God, you had every right to, you know, to allow me to die. I did some foolish things. I did some things that truly could have killed me, but God, you kept me around on this planet, and I thank you for that because I know the reason why you did is because you were wanting me to come to that place where I truly know who you are and have a relationship with you. And so, God, if it seems like you're slack concerning your promise, then Go at it because I'm thankful that you're going to do that so that more and more people can come into the kingdom. 
And even though we might say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, quickly, and we want him to come, the reality is, the Bible is very clear. God's saying, look, everyone needs to hear. Everyone has to hear. Everyone has to know about this amazing God and his plan of salvation for their lives. Every person needs to know. So here's where we go. Watch this. All right. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, verse 10, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Now, listen, here's what he's saying. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. No doubt. But the fact of the matter is we have to realize that God has a priority that literally is of greater importance to him than even his return. And that priority is that every person would come to know him or at least have the opportunity. That's an amazing thing, guys. When we stand before God one day, we are going to be interrogated. If we have not accepted Christ as our Lord, I believe we're going to see every opportunity that was given to us and how we rejected that opportunity. It's not going to be a good thing. But conversely, for those who maybe heard the gospel once, rejected it, said one day, heard it again, perhaps multiple times, but then eventually one day they made a decision, all right, I'm in. The time has come. I'm going to really make things right here and accept what Jesus has done for me. When you stand before God, it's going to be an amazing thing because you may see or you may not see. I'm not sure what's going to happen in that drama. But I do know this, that God is going to allow us to see clearly how merciful and long-suffering he was toward us so that we had received the, the opportunity, whether it be multiple times or just once, where we engaged him and we said, yes, this is what I'm going to do. Now, here's what I want us to understand. Even though he is delaying his coming, there is a commandment right here to the people of God that will help accelerate his return. This is, this is not a contradiction. He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but everyone should come to the knowledge of God. Therefore, that's the reason why he delays his coming. But the only reason he delays his coming is so people will have opportunity to hear the gospel. So if we are going to obey what he says to us, look at verse number 12. What type of people ought we to be as Christians? We ought to be a people who are looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. We are to be a people that are looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. We are to be a people that are anticipating 
and accelerating the coming of the day of God. So it's not enough just to say, yeah, I'm looking forward for that day when Jesus comes. He's saying, no, you are to hasten or you are to accelerate the coming of the day of God. Let me read verse 2, I'm sorry, Verse number 12 of 2 Peter 3 out of the New Living Translation and the NIV. The New Living says we are to be looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. The NIV says as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Now, now have you ever thought about this? Because a lot of people are just like, well, God knows the day. I don't know if he's just going to, you know, just say, well, today I'm going to do it. I'm going to come back. No, 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 guys. That's not the way it works. The fact is he knows the day or hour because he's what? He's omniscient. He's, he, in his foreknowledge, he knows when it's going to happen. But that he knew when you were going to be saved, when I was going to be saved. He knew when evil things are going to happen in the world. But it doesn't mean it was his will that it happened in that particular time. It doesn't mean that things that are happening are his will, even though in his foreknowledge he sees that it's going to happen in the future. But the reality is what he's saying here is that there will be a day when I will return, my son will come down, he will ascend upon the Mount of Olives, and all eyes will see him, and there will be a crying out. You know, they will mourn the one that they've pierced, is what it says when Jesus physically returns to the earth one day. But the fact is, that doesn't mean to say that that time cannot be accelerated because the only thing that's holding Jesus back is this gospel of the kingdom must be preached as a witness throughout the world to all nations, and then the end will come. And if you want to really look at that carefully, remember it's a re- Jesus said that in verse 14 of Matthew 24 in direct response to a question that his disciples asked him in verse 3 of Matthew 24. It's, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Wars, rumors of wars, all these things are going to happen, but the end is not yet. These are the beginning of sorrows. These are birth pangs. The end is not yet. When is the end going to happen? Unequivocally, he says in verse 14, when the gospel of the kingdom is preached throughout the world to every nation, to every ethnic group as a witness, then the end will come. So that means that as a church, we have to evaluate ourselves. What are we doing? What are we really doing? to accelerate the coming of the day of God. I mean, are we, we just kind of like, oh, yeah. We got our rapture shoes on, and, you know, we, we're like got this mindset of evacuation when God says you need to have a mindset of occupation. And the word occupation literally means to move forth and take new ground, to take new territory. So there are places where the enemy is literally got the upper hand. The enemy is prevailing. The enemy is doing terrible, evil things, whether it's in individual lives or, or in cities or nations. And the church is called to go after him and to destroy his works. Right? That's what Jesus said. In Acts 10.38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power, and he went around doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And in 1 John 3.8, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So when Jesus 
rocked up to town in his day. You know what happens? The demons were like, oh, no. Oh, no. Look who's come. We know we're going to be kicked out of here. And if you think that's an exaggeration, let me tell you that when he says in Matthew 10, 7 and 8, when he says to cast out demons, or when it says in Matthew 12, 28, that he cast out demons by the finger of God, the word that literally is translated cast means to kick out. So we're to go into places, people's lives, individuals, our homes, our businesses, our cities, our nations, and we're to give Satan his eviction notice and say, I've come with the kingdom of God, and God says these people belong to him. This is his territory. Satan, your history, you're out of here. Go in the name of Jesus. And we go forth and we begin to preach the gospel in power. We begin to heal the sick. We begin to cast out demons. We begin to proclaim that his kingdom has come and his will has done. And we do those things that liberate people and break the power of the enemy off of their lives so that they can know the one who came to die for them so that they would walk in freedom and the wholeness that he provided for their lives so they would not be lost, but they would be found and they would have a hope and a future. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he came to the earth. He went around setting people free. He went around destroying the works of the enemy. He went around loosing people from the cords of wickedness and evil and what the enemy was doing in their lives. And today, he expects us to do the same. So if we're going to be a people that not only are anticipating the coming of God, but are accelerating the coming of God, then we're going to have to do the same thing. Because if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Matthew 12, 28. Surely the kingdom has come upon you. Because when my kingdom comes, my will is done. So if someone encounters the fullness of the king in his presence and his power... The kingdom is the domain of the king, correct? Kingdom comes from those two words. But in the domain of the king, in the realm, in the jurisdiction, in that sphere, is where the dominion of the king is exercised. A king, a prime minister, a president has a certain jurisdiction in which he legally has been authorized to govern. And Jesus literally owns everything. All the earth, every kingdom belongs to him, every city, every nation, every person. So he's legally authorized to exercise his dominion in that domain. So when we come in and we say, you know what, guys? We are here to literally occupy. Now think about this. Do you realize that if you really study the gospel, and you go back in particular to Daniel chapter 7, you realize that the whole purpose of Jesus coming into the world was not just to save individuals, but to take over the world, to take over the world, to change it, to change everything. Now, one day we know that every 
dead person will be resurrected, correct? Bible says that. People that know God will be resurrected unto life. People that were not, don't know Jesus, there's this thing called the second death that people will experience where they're resurrected and they're thrown into the lake of fire with Satan. But the bottom line is, what he's saying is there is a place where God exercises his authority. One day every person will be resurrected. But does that mean that now there aren't resurrections that are taking place? Because if we look at it, oh, one day, one day it's going to be good. And, you know, we've had songs in the church historically that we've, we've postponed the kingdom of God into some future eschatological event where one day everything's going to be great. But for now, you're going to be in debt. You're going to be distressed. You're going to be discouraged and demonized. This, letter's brought, this message is brought to you by the letter D. So that's the reality of what we inadvertently, unwittingly espouse if we don't teach that Jesus wants to change things now. There are nations that are turning to God, not just individuals. There are entire nations that are turning to God in the world. It's been happening particularly in the past 30 years or so. There's some places. I'm not saying that there isn't corruption. I'm not saying that everyone is a Christian. I'm not saying there aren't problems. But I'm saying that when you look at the way it used to be and you look at the way it is now, things have vastly improved, and it looks like it's just going to keep on getting better. Most of those nations, unfortunately, are not in the West. There are some that are in Africa. There's some that are in South America. There's some that are in Asia. South Korea, for example. But the reality is, there is a call to come back to this thing called the gospel of the kingdom. And if the only thing that is literally preventing Jesus from coming back is people having the opportunity to hear this message of the gospel of the kingdom then don't you think that we ought to do something about it? I'll just share these two things in closing. Number one, the first thing that we need to do is we need to understand the kingdom ourselves. What we have been preaching and hearing in many instances in our churches is what we might call the gospel of salvation and there's only one time when that word is found in the entire New Testament, gospel of salvation. It's found in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. We hear about the gospel of grace, the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of the kingdom, and so on. So we can't say just because it's only said once, it's not important. But what we have to understand is and you've heard me share this, that even our understanding of salvation in most of our churches in the West is an incomplete understanding. Because salvation involves complete freedom from everything that the enemy and this world and sin would want to do to destroy your life. That's what salvation is. Will we experience it all in this life? No. 
one day there will be no more sickness, no more sin, etc. when Jesus returns. So the kingdom is futuristic. It's still in the sense that he will come in the fullness of his kingdom. But there is still a kingdom that's being preached now. Jesus told us to preach it. The kingdom is now. The kingdom is here. And where the king is, his kingdom is present, and his dominion is exercised, and people are changed. And if you get enough people changed in a family, that family's future can literally be saved, can be thwarted. There's times, and you know, when you look at history and you look at individuals that were very evil, and you know, they have the generations before them were, were criminals and, and, and alcoholics, for example, and then someone gets saved and gets on fire for Jesus and then now the successive generations completely change and things become better. I'm not saying every individual gets saved but something happens and a new legacy is forged for the future as you see that that generational curse and the work of the enemy in the previous generations has now been destroyed because the kingdom of God has come with power. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. So we have to understand that the kingdom is here now. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. But then he said, the kingdom of God is in you. The kingdom is here. He's here. That means he has absolute authority over every situation. There's nothing the enemy can do. There's nothing that can prevent you from living in that place of absolute victory and freedom because his dominion is greater than the dominion of the enemy. So you have to understand the kingdom. If you're not in the kingdom, you enter it by being born again and repenting. If you are born again, you will see the kingdom, John 3, 3. Then when you step into the kingdom, then you begin to realize that there are certain things that God wants me to do. I need to know who I am. I need to know what he's made available to me. I need to begin to learn to operate in this new economy. How do I live? <laughs> We're going to talk about this going into January too. There's a thing called a new mind, a new heart that God wants to give his people so that we can begin to live in that place of freedom, that place where we are the ones that are completely overcoming and destroying the works of the enemy. So now we're not just a defensive, introspective type of relationship with God where we're constantly evaluating whether we're worthy enough this week or whether we've done enough things or prayed enough or gone to church enough. Or, but we come to that place where we realize that, no, 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 this is who I am based on what he did. And I don't have to do this anymore because that's not who I am. That doesn't define my identity. My identity, identity is tied to him and I'm a new creation in Christ. And then we have to turn things from just being focused on ourselves to taking this gospel to others. And that doesn't mean to say that we all have to go to another nation. What that means is you have people that you will encounter, whether it's your family, at your place of employment, no matter where it is, that they need to see the power of the kingdom come and set them free. And when you are near them and when you're around them because you've learned to live in the presence of the king 
You've learned to access the power and the provision of his kingdom. You're able to take authority over that situation and say, in Jesus' name, you don't have to be like that. This is who God created you to be. This is what Jesus did for you. In Jesus' name, you can be free. You can be healed. You can be delivered, whatever it is. Because we're called not only to look for the day when Jesus will come, but to actually accelerate that day. Isn't that amazing? The coming of that day. Hallelujah. Father, we just thank you today for your presence in our lives. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for who you are. And Lord, we just give you all the honor and all the glory today, Father. All the honor and all the glory today. You're a good God. Your mercy endures forever. Father, we thank you that your kingdom has a good government. It's governed by a great king, an amazing king, a holy king, a just God. And we thank you, Lord, that you have created us and saved us to know the power and the freedom that is ours as we live in your kingdom. So today, in the name of Jesus, today, in the name of Jesus, we thank you that we can be free. We can be whole. And we can go out and set others free. You know, just before, let me just put an, an amen right there. Just before we, we leave today, let me just say something. Do you know there's a scripture in Revelation chapter 3? And it's that scripture where Jesus says, I believe it's verse 20. Those whom I love, I chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. That's what he says. Those whom I love, I chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Here, here's something that we need to understand about that scripture, okay? It's a little bit technical, but it's important. When he says, be zealous, the, the word, the command there is, it is a command, but it's in, it's literally a word that means to be in a constant state of zeal. In other words, to be constantly, continually burning with the fire of God. It's a, a lifestyle, in other words. When he says repent, it's in a different tense in Greek. It's in the aorist tense. And it literally means do it once, break off, sever that tie, and then the rest of your life burn with zeal. So repent, boom, get it over with. You're dead, you're done. All right, now the rest of my life, I'm going to burn with zeal. And when you look at the Apostle Paul's life, was that not the way it was when he came to Jesus? I mean, yeah, he, he, was, he was a bad person. He was blind. He was zealous for the wrong things. But then when he really came to know Jesus, it was like he changed. And we don't see him struggling and falling and up and down in his Christian life. Why? I want to tell you why. Because he realized he was dead and he took his own desires and affections and he said hey this stuff shouldn't be a priority or anything in my life anymore because I'm dead and because I'm dead Christ is alive and it's only what he wants it's only what he desires 
And I want to tell you guys, the Satan's power has been destroyed by Jesus. Absolutely destroyed. There's nothing that can hold you back. Sin, sickness, there's nothing. But I want to, Satan himself, the fact of the matter is it's been destroyed. But the problem is we want our own way. We want our stuff. We want our, to do our thing. We want our pleasures. And in many instances, we've not either realized what he's made available to us. And we're believing a lie that we're still going to have to do this or do that or whatever to be able to, you know, or always struggle. I'm always going to have this issue in my life. Well, that's not a, at all the gospel. So he says, boom, repent, boom. Okay, God. I belong to you. I'm dead to myself. I belong to you. That's it. I, I, sign me up. Here I am. And then the rest of the days of your life burn with zeal. Burn. Live full on, white hot for Jesus. That's what it is. Isn't that amazing? Can we stand together, please? Drive less, save more. Ride Coda with the Transit app. Download today for a 450 credit. There's a new way to pay at Coda.